I'm delighted to share with you on uh, Mission Emphasis Sunday. I think those uh, events make a huge contribution to our thinking and our commitments and plant seeds in people's lives. I'll say something about that later. I'm tempted to reminisce. Have you ever thought about it? When people get as old as I am, you have a whole lot going on up here. I met one of your members who's 95 and a half. I wonder how many books are in his head that'll never be written. I think I remember almost all of my teachers, you know, from grammar school and high school and two or three colleges and so on. There's just a whole lot going on. It's amazing any of us have presence of mind or not crazy because we have too much to keep up with. But uh, I'm tempted to reminisce. I knew the Griffiths before they knew each other when they were just young children. I knew their parents, and um, it was a surprise to meet them. Uh, Sandra and Don Humphrey, she reminded me tonight, uh, I married them 48 years ago when I had been married about three years myself, and uh, proud of what she has done and become, in fact, a lot of those young people at Wichita, Kansas. We never know what kind of investments we're making in people, just Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, steadily praying, encouraging each other, feeding on scripture, and worshiping God. It's a whole lot like eating meals at home. How many of them do you really remember is outstanding? But somehow as teenagers, we had hollow legs and we grew and we grew gradually until we get adults and so on. It's a whole lot that way with spiritual growth. And I hope what you've done today and the, this weekend will make one of those significant contributions uh, to your welfare and to the welfare of a hurting world. I'm glad you're placing emphasis in local evangelism as well as foreign evangelism. Some churches make a choice between that. But in our country, we, we are the fourth largest nation of unchurched people in the world. That's because we're a large country. That's not percentage. We just have more unchurched noses. Only three, three countries have more than we. So we have a lot of work to do here at home. And I'm glad that we do that. I have a vested interest in it because when I was 10 years old, my parents began attending Churches of Christ, a Church of Christ in Johnson City, Tennessee. Prior to that, we didn't go anywhere very much. I'd never heard of Churches of Christ. 1945, my mother became a Christian after hearing the gospel three times. And then at age 12, uh, two years later, I became a Christian and I've often reminisced and just wondered what I would be if I hadn't become a Christian. And whether or not I would, if during 1945, you know what was going on? World War II, and money was hard. But there were three churches, at least, that went together. One in Nashville, Reed Avenue, one in Sparta, and one in Chattanooga. They went together and hired an intelligent man who had gone to Lipscomb when it was a two-year school and sent him up there to plant a new church in Johnson City. I had a chance to write him before he died. Thought he was already dead, but he was an old man down in Florida. And I wrote him a letter and thanked him for what he did. Not sure they could have survived very well if the farmers hadn't brought produce to them. But he stuck with it. He was intelligent. He was organized. He had convictions. He loved people and he loved us. And he built a church. And I'm glad he came to East Tennessee to teach some of us hard-headed folks the gospel. So I have an interest in people who reach out. And I commend you for doing that. And I wonder how many little 
ten-year-old toe-headed boys there are in your community who but for you may not come to know God. And what will they amount to? I saw these little children coming in tonight and I thought, my, my, what will they grow up to be? You have something to do with that. Model the Christian life. Give them encouragement and encourage one another. But tonight I'm going to give you the biblical basis for that, not just the practical part. As you can imagine, having served as a missionary 10 years in Western Europe and having visited about 38 countries uh, with former students, evaluating missions and teaching and so forth. I've just finished the 10th trip to South Korea. Not quite over it yet, so if I begin speaking gobbledygook and get terribly disorganized, blame it on overnight flights and that kind of thing. But um, I, I'm very very encouraged at the things that I see, have a lot of stories to tell about the effect the gospel has had on people's lives. But missions doesn't fall in the category of bus ministry. You know, there are a lot of ways of reaching local people, and bus ministry was quite all right. And if nobody ever does it again, we have other options. Bus ministry itself was not mandated by God. That was just one way of doing it. But missions is not uh, just an option. It figures in very prominently in the whole storyline of Scripture, and that's why I've entitled what I'm going to say to you tonight, Don't Start with the Great Commission. I don't want to underplay the Great Commission. It is kind of a hinge between the Old and the New Testament. Profoundly important. I published an entire chapter in a book one time on this, this one passage, Matthew, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Profoundly important. And I really have no objection to beginning there if we use it and go backward because so much of what Jesus said there connects with the past and I don't have time to go in that but what I want to say is we don't need to begin our thinking with merely the statement of Jesus go and make disciples of all the world there's a long background to that and it really begins in Genesis Um, if I can get this thing to work now yes we begin, though, with Jesus himself, and it's said of him in Matthew 4:23 that he went about in Galilee doing three things, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and, and healing every disease. And several times in the gospels, these three things are mentioned about Jesus' work, and that's the kind of thing we see the early church doing. Um, am I not holding? Ah, Okay. The early church engaged in three things, compassionate ministry, helping people who hurt. We often call it benevolence. Uh, it proclaimed the gospel. We see that in Acts and reflected in the epistles as well. And they were building up those believers. They didn't leave them uh, just inside the church door, so to speak. Most of the epistles of the New Testament are written to strengthen people, to protect them, to guide them. So it isn't enough just to bring people to Christ but to mold them and shape them after that and strengthen them. So the early church followed what Jesus set down as an agenda. But uh, balance among these three things is very important if we want to grow. Ira North wrote a neat little book about that years ago. Balance, the key to church growth. We need to do all three of those. Compassionate service is the first thing that will cause some unbelievers to take notice of the church, that people love each other that they reach out and help people who hurt. But uh, tonight we're going to focus on one of these, and that is proclaiming the gospel. And I want to say that it doesn't rest only on Matthew 28 or Mark 16. 
is really a part of the storyline of Scripture. And I want to demonstrate a bit of that tonight so that in your thinking, you will not see evangelism as just the interest of a little minority in the church, but rather a part of every Christian's being faithful to God. And we all can do something about that, and I'll try to outline that. And here's the, here's the root of it. It really is rooted in the heart of God who made humans, unlike anything else that he made, they're said to be made in the image after the likeness of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. They alone of God's creatures were able to converse with God, have a sense of right and wrong, and a sense of being pleasing to God. They made a horrible decision, and their offspring have followed it ever since. Adam and Eve rebelled, oh, in a sophisticated sort of way, but they rebelled, as we read in Genesis 3. And so Isaiah could say in chapter 59, uh, the hand of the Lord is not short that he cannot have help. His ears are not low that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God so that he will not hear. The gospel is not good news unless we have a profound sense of our own sin and separation from God. Our deep need that uh, to be something else, to be what God wants. And uh, over time, God, because of his love, began to set in place a means by which estranged human, his creatures, who are capable of godliness, capable of partaking of the divine nature, if we may use the words of Peter, might be brought back to him, might be wooed back by him. And yet humans have been quite uh, rebellious, quite difficult to reach. We know what that means in our own lives. And it's interesting to me that in Galatians, Galatians along with Romans, some people regard as the high point in Paul's writing about the gospel. But in Galatians 3, he makes a profound statement. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now in the Old Testament, when the word nation is used, goyim in Hebrew, that's everybody but Jews. That's tantamount to saying Gentiles. And he said, the time is coming when all the nations will be blessed through Abraham. And Paul said, that is good news. He said, the gospel was preached beforehand. And he goes back to Genesis. Have you ever thought about that? Well, there's a sense in which we have the good news and another sense in which we don't know very much about it. And I want to structure some of that. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis 18. That's just one of the statements made to Abraham. It's called the promise. And here I portray Genesis 12, Genesis 13, 15, Genesis 16 and 17 and 18 and 21 are all passages where God in his interactions with Abram uh, reaffirms this promise. Abraham I'm going to make of you a nation. I know right now you don't even have any children. I'm going to make of you a nation. I'm going to give this land of Canaan to you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will eventually be blessed. That was reaffirmed to his son Isaac, a son of promise. In uh, Genesis 26. And then to Jacob's grandson, I mean, uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Genesis 28. Uh, that I'm going to keep this promise that I made 
to your father or your grandfather. And to all of them, he said, in one way or another, in you, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He doesn't detail that. He doesn't say how. It's just they're all going to be blessed. And so when Abraham was in the Ur of the Chaldees, over in the far-hand right, that's the area of Iraq and Iran. Uh, Now it's Ur of the Chaldees. See, this area, the Tigris and Euphrates, that that runs through Iraq. That's one reason why it's an important country uh, in the Middle East. They have a lot of natural resources and they have water. People have been fighting since prehistory over water rights in the Middle East and so on. And they travel in that circular way or crescent shape because that's where water was, where vegetation. And Abraham goes all the way down to Palestine. God renews his promise. He goes down to Egypt and he comes back up and eventually begins to make a nation of them. God was keeping his promise. God chose Israel as his instrument to reveal something about himself. In other words, God had a promise, but he chose to use a people to help accomplish that promise. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 7, he said, I didn't choose you because you were a big nation or an important, attractive people. Indeed, you were the smallest of those nations. But I chose you out of my own love to make something out of you and thereby demonstrate something about myself. Over in Isaiah 60 and 61, both, he uses the metaphor of taking Israel and planting her like a tree that grows into something beautiful and saying, through you, Israel, through the way you live as a nation, if, you, if you're loyal to the covenant and you keep my way of life, you won't have all these diseases that others have. You'll have peace. There'll be wisdom with you. There'll be huge justice. And he says, in you, I want to display my beauty, display my splendor. There's a New Testament update of that. It's Ephesians 2.10. that says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Only God can make a Christian. The devil wouldn't do it if he could, and he couldn't do it if he wanted to. A Christian is a workmanship of God. And so as Christians, we, like ancient Israel, are supposed to say in our lives something about the nature of our maker, something about God. One Old Testament example of this is found in 1 Kings chapter 10 with the Queen of Sheba. How many times have you heard a sermon on the Queen of Sheba? She was a Gentile, but she had heard of Solomon and all the splendor of Israel. She made a trip there, and she said, it took away my breath. That sounds like she was breathless when she saw that, and she said, well, the, the half has not been told. We used to sing a hymn about that that relates it to the gospel. The half has not been told. She was impressed by his wisdom, by the sense of justice and the prosperity that they enjoyed. And she got the point. And that's why she said that Israel's God is a wonderful God, a great God. So Israel at her best was supposed to say something about God. He used people in order to make the point and to reveal something about himself. Um, Along this time, he gave uh, a promise to to David, saying that the offspring of David would sit on the kingdom, uh, sit on the throne of God's kingdom. So in the Old Testament, we have this promise to Abraham, his offspring, and David was one of them, and renewed promises to David about what he was going to do, that someone would reign through him. We sang a moment ago about the personal aspect of that, Lord, reign in me, be king of my life. We used to sing a hymn about that, king of my life, by thy grace I shall be. 
uh, you shall be. God's to reign over us, the king of our hearts. And so the offspring of David was supposed to occupy that. That was a part of Old Testament expectation. When will it come? When will it come? What form will it take? I'm not holding my mouth right or something about this thing. Will you advance it, please? Yes, thank you. A little bit of insight on this foretaste of what God was going to do is found in the dedication of the temple. Now, the temple of Solomon and the temple of Herod, the second temple, uh, were both profoundly important to the Jews. They protected it. It was for the Jews alone. Uh, in Herod's temple, though, there was the court of the Gentiles. That's where people were changing money and making it a den of thieves. And that's why Jesus was so upset about it and turned over their tables and drove them out. They had turned the place where the Gentiles, that's as close as they could come. But it was allocated for them so they might pray to God. And so Jesus' concern for the welfare of the Gentiles is displayed even there. Get out of here, you thieves. This is written, this is to be a house of prayer for all peoples. And to think about that temple, they even swore by the temple. Very important. Uh, Nothing more Jewish really in that period than the temple itself where God would place his presence. But in um, 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 6, we have a record of a long prayer that Solomon prayed standing before that temple with his arms upstretched. He must have had strong deltoids to just stand there for a long time and pray like that. Just stand sometimes, see how long you can hold your arms out. But in verse 41 of that prayer, he said, Lord, when the foreigner comes for your sake, verse 41, hear him. When he prays toward this place, hear him in heaven and grant his request. He asked that in order that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. So even constructing the temple for the Jews and the Levitical priests and all of that, teaching them purity and separateness and holiness was for the Jews. It wasn't for the Gentiles yet. Even there, there was a sensitivity to other people coming to know God and to, and to serve him. Next, please. Um, here were, there are several of these forecasts of all nations that we find in the Old Testament. Isaiah 2 and Micah 2, similar passages. The time is coming when all nations will come to Jerusalem and the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. Remember, nations means Gentiles. Isaiah 56 mentions that the foreigners and the eunuchs will have full blessings in the future. And that's probably what the Ethiopian treasurer, who was a eunuch, had in mind when he said, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? In other words, is it for me, a eunuch? He had just been to Jerusalem to worship, and it was limited as to how far into the temple he could go as a eunuch. There was a biological limitation on him. And he's essentially saying, Philip, do I understand you to mean this is for me too, as fully as for everybody else? Yes. He had, he had just been taught the gospel from Isaiah 53. That's what he was reading. And it's inconceivable, it seems to me, that he would have read Isaiah 53 without getting over to chapter 56, especially since it's mentioned his category of people, a eunuch and foreigners and other people. Yes, there was the forecast that this is going to be for Gentiles to the ends of the earth. And that's another thing from a Roman point of view. Ethiopia would have been at the ends of the earth. And you get certain parts of it and you're quite well aware that I'm at the ends of the earth. 
back in November, my wife and I went to the Pan-American lectures in Quito, Ecuador. And my heart was deeply touched when we were uh, down on the coastal area and were introduced to a group of Quechua Indians from high in the Andes who had become Christians because one man had learned the gospel in Spanish and he knew Quechua and he taught the gospel to them. And here were these Indians who live at surely what is one of the spots that's called the ends of the earth. And there there were Christians. And I couldn't but reflect on some of this Old Testament teaching and what's stated in Acts 1, that the gospel is going to go to the, to the ends of the earth. Psalm 67 has been called the missionary psalm because it mentions so many times the time is coming when the nations will come and praise you, God. The nations will come and praise you. Like those Quechua Indians were as they sang songs about God. And that God will be praised among the nations. That's the refrain that we see over and over in the Psalms. They were nurturing that hope that God would one day do what he promised to Abraham. Uh, so there were a lot of forecasts of nations. The book of Jonah is likely intended as a rebuke to Jewish exclusiveness. You know, there's only one, wor- one verse that tells us what Jonah said. And it was a message of doom. But then later they repented. And Jonah's angry about it. Because he went to all that effort. And God just forgave them and didn't kill them. And it's almost as though Jonah says, I expect you to do what you said you'd do. Um, the Jews from time to time misread their election. It's true they were the elect people of God. They were chosen. But they were chosen for service, not for bragging. He chose them to serve his purposes, not to strut about the place arrogantly saying, of all the people of the earth, God chose us. Yeah, but he didn't choose them because they were more intelligent or more righteous. He chose them to make something out of them, to say something about himself. And so the book of Jonah where Jonah goes to Ninevites, that's Gentiles. And uh, God shows mercy to them in, uh, in advance. The Jews were to be a light to the nations. This is a thing that recorded in Isaiah 49, 9 and 42, 32. What does this mean, saying they're going to be a light to the nations? How is it to be carried out? And what would it involve? Well, we're not really told in the Old Testament what the details are. We get to the end of the Old Testament and still we're not told specifically how all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in Abraham or even in David. It's there and it's prominent, but we're not told exactly what God is going to do. And scripture is full of of divine uh, surprises. And so they didn't know how that was going to to work out. It's interesting that... um, In the writings of Paul, he refers to the gospel as a mystery, the musterion. And that didn't mean spooky uh, in that sense. A musterion was that uh, it was like a carefully designed battle plan, which a general doesn't share. But it's a very careful plan. And then it finally becomes an open secret after he executes it. And that's what the mystery is that Paul talked about because in Colossians he explains here's the mystery that God brings the Gentiles in along with the Jews God had a careful plan for that and it was finally revealed in Jesus Christ how he was going to do that Um, now Jesus is and his work is therefore connected to the past that's why I said we don't begin with a great commission 
because it rests on this this huge bedrock of the Old Testament, the storyline of Scripture, and it comes later. Matthew 1.1 begins with that affirmation that we may not realize to be important, but against the Old Testament background, it's profoundly important. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Messiah of Israel had to be of the offspring of David and Abraham. And he bothers to give the names there, showing the connection. That alone didn't prove that he was the son of God. There were several people who were offspring of David and Abraham, biologically. But at least that was a minimum requirement. But he came to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You remember the the scene in the temple when the old man Simeon is holding Jesus and he's blessing him. And that's when he quotes that passage in Luke 2, 23. He's come to be a light for the Gentiles. Now in Jesus' personal life, he said, I did not come to serve anybody except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But over and over, he made references to the others. He referred favorably to the Samaritans in Luke 10 and to the Gentiles in Luke 4, 25 to 27, chapter 7 and 10, and to publicans and sinners. Those were the people who were sinful and who confessed it. And Jesus let it be known he had deep sympathy for them. He was concerned about them, but his active ministry was to the Jews. But he was setting the whole group up for something else. When Paul and Barnabas, for example, turned from the rebellious Jews to the Gentiles, they quoted this passage in Isaiah 49.6. And you can read it in Acts 13, Paul's first mission journey. They go to the synagogues because the gospel was to go first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. He goes to the synagogues first. And in this case, they resisted. They're rebellious. They're not going to have it. And he said, we will therefore turn to the Gentiles because it is written, and he refers to Isaiah 49, 6, that we'll be a light to the Gentiles. We are Jews, and we're preaching the gospel. We are to be a light to the Gentiles. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, you Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And that's when he quotes the passage. Then they said, the Lord has commanded us saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When Paul went before Agrippa, he made it very clear that his ideas were connected. What he was doing was connected to the past. His actions were because of the hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which the 12 tribes hope to attain. My work among the Gentiles caused me to be before you, Agrippa. It's because my Jewish brothers are terribly upset that I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But he said it's because of the hope of these Gentiles, the hope that our forefathers had, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm carrying that out. What I'm doing is a part of the storyline of the Bible, the whole Bible. That's why sending the gospel to people who don't know it is so critically important for us. It's not just a nice little option that we might dispense with, but it's a part of God's overall plan, that mystery of the ages. There are some of the reasons that um, why we don't stake our claim, Matthew 28 alone, all nations has a rich and loaded background, as you see. Go and make disciples of all the nations. That was tantamount to saying the messianic age is here. The Psalms, 
the prophets and the others talked about this time. It starts in Genesis and now it's here. Jesus came and he lays the foundation for our making disciples of all nations. He affirms the messianic age. He points backward as well as forward. It's a matter of principle then that all people who do not know God should have the opportunity to know him at home as well as abroad. In the Old Testament, God is presented as keeping his promises to the patriarchs. He made the Jews as a nation and gave them the land of Canaan. He kept his promises. And in that process, he used humans like Moses and Joshua and Samuel and the kings of united Israel. So he used people to keep his own promises. And so he led them to the promised land. Those 12 tribes had their inheritances. God keeps his promises. He did in making Israel a nation and giving them Canaan. And he keeps his promises about other things too. Under the new covenant, God intends to use his people, the church, just as he used ancient Israel to fulfill his promises to bless all the nations through the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. The church is called upon to participate in God's long-standing intention and plan to make the whole world aware of his identity and his love so they can be reconciled to him. That's a part of why we exist. We're to do compassionate work. We're to build each other up. But we're to do for others what somebody did for us in acquainting us with Jesus Christ. That's an inherent part of the church's being and its existence. Um, and so we see what the earliest disciples did. And this is just a map of Paul's journeys and his companions. And when Acts ends, Paul is in Rome, the center of the empire, having established that the gospel is as much for women as it is for men. It's for rich and poor. It's for the disenfranchised. It's for eunuchs. It's for Gentiles. The gospel is for everyone. And that principle was set down for subsequent ages. Now, what do we do about the rest of them? Well, I want to suggest that there are three things. We can be prayerful for the world and the workers. Um, you're supporting people in several countries. You're in in Europe, and you're in Africa, and you're in Latin America. And one thing you can do is have certain days on which you pray for each of those workers, that God will sustain them and use them and give them wisdom and give them good health and protect them. And that if they're persecuted, that he'll help them to use that to, for his glory. Be prayerful for people. There was a man in the last part of the 18th century, the 1700s, named William Carey, who went to India from Great Britain. He had an invalid sister who wanted to go with him. But she couldn't. And he stayed for 40 years. And his sister prayed for him 40 years. That was a part of her ministry. And you can do that for people as well. Pray for them. Send forth workers and you're doing that. I would like to believe somehow that as a result of weekends like this, a good seed is planted in some young person's heart to say that one of these days I'm going to use myself for something besides making money and going to clubs and rooting for ball games. And I'd use a slice of my life to spread the gospel in needy territory. Maybe here in the USA. Maybe in another country. Just be prayerful. Keep your antenna up for open doors that God will provide for you.
And you might go yourselves, officially or vocationally. You're getting ready to send some folks to Brazil. That's wonderful. It's a receptive country and they need the gospel. We have a lot of work there, but a lot more work needs to be done. Praise God. But there are other countries that are hard to get into. But you know what some people are doing? They're getting transfers with their companies like Union Carbide. I saw a man leading singing in Sao Paulo, Brazil several years ago. Uh, He learned Portuguese, but he worked for Union Carbide. He was there free. I was in Taipei, Taiwan in 1980. We were at the Ten Move church building, and somebody said, look at this. And here was a big, tall, lanky guy and a little short Chinese woman walking with him. It was sort of the Mutt and Jeff kind of thing. The guy worked for IBM in Taipei. And that little Chinese woman worked in his office. He was introducing her to Jesus, and that was free. Um, if you really want to do something for yourself, you can, you can go to Korea. South Korea and teach English if you're a native English speaker and have a college degree. They'll pay you because the Korean government wants every school in Korea to have a native English speaker. And you can go. Healthcare is good. It's a peaceful country, safer than ours. Socialized medicine. There are opportunities for people to spread out. That's not new. Our people have been doing it a long time. But those are some things you can do in the interest of spreading the gospel to people who do not know it. Deliberately take a job in a place in the USA where there's either a week or no church, and you can help that to grow. God touches the lives of people who are introduced to the gospel, and I hope he'll use this tonight to help you to see this isn't a fad. This is a part of the storyline of Scripture, and that story still continues with you and me.